0: by Alison Duncan. Then Alison Gopnik wrote, gift-giving reminds us of how to care for others. Tali Arbel wrote, Walmart music in mornings as businesses turn sensory friendly. And then Rolf Winkler and Briad Abbott wrote, growing use of ketamine gets a closer look after Perry's death. And we'll follow that up with an article by Dan Furman computers will soon read your mind. All these articles are from recent editions of the Wall Street Journal. So let's begin with the first article, Conquer the Clutter. Smug minimalists often tout the one-in-one-out rule, a clutter control practice that involves removing one item from your home anytime you add another. But during the amped up accumulation of the holidays, even typically type A housekeepers can find themselves derailed and searching for ways to call the excess. So much stuff is coming into our homes this time of year, along with pressure to be jolly, said Chicago-based professional organizer Sarah Parisi of the Clutter Curator. It's a natural time to declutter. To help expedite the process, He or she and other home experts share tips for de-accessorizing effectively, whether you're motivated by profit, charity, or sheer exhaustion. What to do if you want to make some cash? Prioritize. The biggest question I ask my clients is what's worth their time, said Washington, D.C.-based decluttering expert Jenny Albertini. Identify which pieces offer the highest return and focus your efforts on selling those. Local auction houses or upscale online decor marketplaces like Incollect, First Dibs, or Cherish are Albertini's go-to for unloading particularly valuable furnishings. For everything else, New York-based interior designer Amy Lau prefers Facebook Marketplace. It's quick and commission-free, she said, and though managing the selling process can be laborious, the payoff is usually worth it. Craving a truly clean slate? Check estatesales.org to find a house cleaning company to prep your home for a monster tag sale. They'll keep a percentage of the profit, explains Albertini, but you do much less work. What to do if you want to do good? The best way to get rid of stuff is whatever gets it out of your house fastest, usually donation, said Dallas-based decluttering expert Dana K. White. For that reason, she encourages clients to think of organizations like the Salvation Army as service providers and not to get hung up on which charity feels like a just-right match. Start with local homeless shelters, churches, or goodwill, Which is as ubiquitous as Starbucks and a good option for generalized donations, Albertini said. Animal shelters sometimes accept odds and ends, like pillows and beddings, that other organizations won't. If you're ready to part with an item but believe someone else could cherish it, steer toward organizations like Humble Design. This nonprofit, which operates in Chicago, Cleveland, Detroit, San Diego, and Seattle, collects donated furniture and household items, either by drop-off or pickup, and stores the goods in their warehouse. Humble's designers and volunteers later shop the warehouse to furnish homes for families emerging from homelessness. Similarly, to keep reusable household items from landing in landfills, Habitat for Humanity's restores except used furniture, appliances, housewares, and building materials and resell them to the public at a discount, using the profits to build affordable housing worldwide. What to do if? You want to do almost nothing. Does decluttering seem like just another chore? For clients who are loath to add another item to their to do list, Albertini recommends Offer Up a classified service akin to Facebook Marketplace that requires fewer fussy photos and descriptions. She also likes the consignment store CAO. It will pick up, store, clean, and deliver your furniture to its eventual buyer for a percentage of the sale price. For anything left over, hire a hauling service like 1-800-GOT-JUNK, Dolly, or Junk King, which do 100% of the heavy lifting for you. Bottom line, says Lau, if you don't love it or use it, lose it. And now, gift-giving reminds us of how to care for others. Why do we do this, we cry as we trudge through yet another mall, searching desperately for just the right presents for everyone on our list. The tiny carols alone are enough to make you feel like Scrooge, that every idiot with Merry Christmas on his lips, not to mention jingle bells on his sound system, should be buried with a stake of holly through his heart. This personal creed de corps is echoed in the general complaint that presents have made the holidays too commercial, material, and consumerist. So why do we do this? We might find an answer in the cognitive science of care. Human beings devote enormous time and energy and resources to taking care of our children and parents, our partners and friends, the sick and the needy, without expecting a return. It's a profoundly moral and meaningful part of our lives and an important part of what it means to be human. Yet caregiving has been almost invisible in economics and politics. It doesn't show up in the GDP, for example. Instead, the foundational idea behind economic and political theory and much moral psychology and philosophy, too, is the social contract. On this view, I am an individual agent with goals I want to achieve and resources I can use to achieve them. So are you. By agreeing to swap some of our resources, we can both do better than we would on our own. Markets and democracies, the great inventions of the Enlightenment, help to scale up those social contracts to include millions of people at once caregiving, on the other hand, is at the heart of many different religious traditions. Agape and caritas, the Greek and Latin terms for unconditional love, are central to the Christian tradition as chesled or loving kindness is in Judaism. The Madonna and Child are a focus of meditation in Orthodox Christianity, and Islamic traditions emphasize the importance of filial piety. In Buddhist meditation, you begin by imagining the way you feel towards someone you care for and gradually extend that feeling to strangers and even enemies. God or Christ is supposed to feel the same way about everyone that a parent feels about a child. Understanding caregiving better might help us to explain gift-giving. Christmas shopping might be a spiritual practice as much as an economic transaction. Caregiving does not fit the social contract picture. It's profoundly and intrinsically altruistic. When I take care of my children or my aging parents, I don't expect anything in return. Even professional caregivers like child care workers and home health aides will tell you that they do the work despite being underpaid because it's so satisfying to take care of people who need you. Almost by definition, caregivers have more resources and capacities than the people they care for. Usually, if you have less than I do, I can get you to do what I want. It gives me a kind of power. But when I take care of you, the very fact that you have less than I do reverses that power relationship. It gets me to help you do what you want. Caregiving has biological and evolutionary roots in the special relationship between nursing mammalian mothers and their babies. Even mice give up calories to their newborns, and the distinctive hormones and brain activations that underpin that care show up in human care, too. But for humans, care extends beyond kin. We care for many different kinds of people in many different ways. Gay fathers who take care of their adopted newborns develop the same brain patterns as biological mothers. We don't care for people because we love them. We love them because we care for them. And when we take care of someone, we don't just try to make their lives better. We try to think about what they would want, even if it's very different from what we would want, or even what we would want for them. We give them the resources they need to make their own decisions and achieve their own goals. Respecting the autonomy of an elderly parent or a gravely ill patient, or even a difficult teenager, is a genuine part of caring for them. All this makes caregiving very different from other social, political, and economic relationships. The standard explanation of gift giving in the social sciences says that gifts, like everything else, are really about contracts and power. When I give you a gift and you accept it, you are in my debt. The rules of social contract say that you should do something for me in return. Instead, giving someone a present can be considered a little symbolic act of care. Gift giving has the same structure as caregiving. It's intrinsically altruistic, a bit of what I have to help you get something you want without demanding a return. It's local too. You don't give presents to just anybody. A gift is a way of saying that there is a relationship between us, that there is at least a smidgen of love and attachment. Most crucially, we want our gift to be tuned to the particular desires and goals of the recipient. That's why giving cash seems wrong, even if it might be more rational. We want to convey that we are thinking about what that unique individual wants, even if we end up attaching a gift receipt in case we're wrong. That's also why we treasure the clumsy clay mugs and crude homemade lanyards that our children give us. As we say, it's the thought that counts. Taking care of children is the most fundamental biological form of caregiving, so it's no wonder that presents for children are at the core of our holiday narratives. The Christian story is centered on caregiving for a newborn baby and, of course, the Magi bring gifts. But even atheists appreciate the potent vision of happy children opening gifts under the tree. Charles Dickens' great story, A Christmas Carol, is a parable of the gulf between contracts and care. Scrooge, a homo economicus, if there ever was one, starts out quite rationally skeptical of the idiots who shout Merry Christmas. He's not converted by arguments or doctrine, but by the experience of caring for Tiny Tim, an impoverished, disabled child who would never be able to reciprocate and may not even live to see another Christmas. Shrew's gift to the Cratchit family, a turkey twice as big as Tiny Tim, marks his transformation to caregiving. Maybe thinking about care can help us dispel our inner Scrooge as we trudge through the mall contemplating the tie for Uncle Fred or the bath salts for Aunt Jane and restore the holiday spirit to our souls. And now Walmart mutes music in mornings as businesses turn sensory friendly. Overhead lights, music on blast, and crowds in the aisles. For autistic people and others who get sensory overload, particularly during the holidays, shopping can be unbearable. There's a lot of overstimulation, said Tanya Garcia, an autistic 32-year-old nursing student from the Phoenix suburbs. It's a lot of lights, the background music, the signs. If she encounters disorganization in a store, she leaves. I cannot handle that, she said. Walmart, the country's biggest retailer, in November launched sensory-friendly hours in United States stores to make them more inclusive. Walmart said it dims the lights, cuts the radio, and puts still images on TV sets from 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. when customer traffic is thinner. Garcia said the quiet helped her five-year-old daughter, Valeria, who is also artistic, stay in the store for 30 minutes double her usual capacity during a late November shopping trip. We were able to go to the back of the store and go to the toy section and buy her a sensory toy she grabbed, Garcia said. Before that, we were not able to go further than the fruit and vegetable area. Growing awareness of autism spectrum disorder and other sensory changes is driving change. Airports have built sensory friendly spaces. AMC Entertainment and other movie theater chains have special screening. Sports arena, museums, Broadway theaters, and Walt Disney theme parks have made adjustments. The idea for Walmart's calm hours came from a company committee that supports store employees with disabilities. A spokeswoman said it wasn't required by federal disability law. Our reason for doing this is just allowing everyone to have a better shopping experience, said Cedric Clark, executive vice president of store operations for Walmart, United States. There was no guidance or insights on this having any financial impact. Autism diagnosis in the United States have risen over the past two decades. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention estimates that about 3% of United States children have autism spectrum disorder. Quieter spaces don't just benefit autistic people, said Cynthia Martin, a psychologist and senior director of the Child Mind Institute's Autism Center. If you have the choice of a more calm, less crowded environment, that's going to feel a lot better to most people, Martin said. Parents said an overload of sound or light or the press of too many people could agitate children or prompt them to run off, potentially causing a dangerous accident. They worry about reactions from others and cutting outings short. Autistic people and parents of autistic children said companies' accommodations are meaningful and helpful, if not always perfect. Walmart's calm store efforts, which are controlled remotely from its corporate offices, have had hiccups. Some stores remain brightly lighted during the calm hours. Not all Walmart locations have the capacity to dim the lights, said a spokeswoman. Some people said the time was inconvenient. They'll say they'll dim the lighting and some other things. Why can't you do that all the time, said Ron Kearns, a 55-year-old graphic designer from Arkansas who was diagnosed with autism nearly a decade ago. You really want to be all-inclusive? Then just make that a normal practice. Walmart said it offers other options to accommodate customers' needs, such as delivery and order pickup. United States federal discrimination law requires businesses to make reasonable changes for accessibility. There are some specific government rules. Organizations must allow service animals, for example, but typically changes are made after a request for an accommodation said Min Vu, a partner at Safer Shaw who specializes in the American with Disabilities Act. People with disabilities use litigation to enforce the law, although they don't always win. A decade ago, Disney overhauled its system for people with disabilities, which lets people skip long lines after reports of people who were abusing it. Instead, autistic people and others could wait for a ride away from the throng. An autistic person brought a case after Disney's change saying long ride wait times were a failure to accommodate him. A Florida judge ruled in the company's favor in 2020. An October trip to Walt Disney World for Jen Puccini's family was only possible because of Disney's system, she said. Not everybody can be packed in a line for two hours with the music blaring over your head," said Puccini, founder of 21 Senses, an advocacy group for people with sensory disabilities. They have a whole process for getting out of that without being unfair to everyone who is standing in a line. Puccini couldn't find Disney's break area for people with cognitive disabilities. When her 13-year-old son, who has high functioning autism and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder needed to regroup, they had to leave the park early for the day. Pittsburgh International Airport opened one of the first sensory-friendly rooms at a United States airport back in 2019 after an employee with an autistic son made the case for it. Airports in cities including Newark, New Jersey, Miami, and Phoenix have designed spaces for people who have sensory conditions or dementia. And now, growing use of ketamine gets a closer look after Perry's death. Matthew Perry's death from the effects of ketamine brought new scrutiny to the booming business to prescribe the powerful anesthetic to patients in clinics and online. Perry was receiving ketamine infusions for depression and anxiety before he was found responsive in the pool at his Pacific Palisades, California home on October 28th. Drowning coronary artery disease and effects of buprenorphine, a medication used to treat opiate use disorder, contributed to his accidental death, the autopsy report recently released said. The high level of ketamine in his blood when he died at 54 years old couldn't have come from his last known treatment at a clinic a week and a half before his death, the report said. Traces of the drug usually linger in the blood for a few days. It isn't known whether Perry purchased more ketamine from another provider or the illicit market. This really should be a wake-up call that ketamine needs to be used appropriately, said Gerald Sanonora, director of Yale University's Depression Research Program. He noted that the Food and Drug Administration's approval of a version of ketamine for treatment-resistant depression requires that the drug be given under a healthcare professional observation in a clinical setting. The treatment approved in 2019 requires follow-up reporting to track adverse events, and it is not approved for at-home use. The FDA didn't respond with a request for a comment. With safeguards in place, the treatment has been shown to be safe and effective, doctors said but regulators and doctors have expressed concern over ketamine's expanding use and the dangers of taking it at home without supervision. Ketamine has been used in hospitals and clinics for decades to numb people during surgeries. It is also a common party drug, nicknamed Special K, that has hallucinogenic properties and creates an out-of-body feeling. Clinics have opened across the country to administer it off-label to treat severe depression, other mental health conditions, and chronic pain. Researchers are studying whether ketamine could help treat substance use disorders, and doctors sometimes prescribe it for that purpose. Others don't prescribe it to people with a history of addiction. Online providers started prescribing the drug for home use during the COVID-19 pandemic, thanks to relaxed federal rules on a remote prescription. Also, telehealth providers can advertise drugs in ways many pharmaceutical companies can't. Ads by Mindbloom, one online ketamine provider, have noted that it has minimal side effects without listing them and claimed that ketamine works more effectively than antidepressants. Mindbloom said it's ketamine treatment has helped thousands of people with depression and that its safeguards include monitoring during sessions. It didn't comment on its advertising, but in the past has said its ads comply with all applicable regulations. Safety concerns with ketamine include increases in blood pressure, respiratory depression, and bladder problems, according to the FDA. People can also get into accidents of taking the drug unsupervised, doctors said. Ketamine clinics often use IV infusions or injections and have medical staff monitor patients during treatment. At home, patients use oral lozenges or nasal spray. The FDA has warned about the use of compounded ketamine, including lozenges and sprays. It's warning in 2022 and this October said the lack of monitoring when the drug is prescribed online and used at home puts patients at risk. Mindbloom and other online providers often instruct patients to have someone monitor them at home while they take the drug. The American Society of Ketamine Physicians, Psychotherapists, and Practitioners said it is working on ethical and scientific standards for providers to use including for at-home prescribing and educating on best practices. While the evidence of efficacy is overwhelming, ketamine as a mental health treatment is still off-label and unregulated, said Dr. Sandhya Prashad, the group's president, earlier this month. This has created a Wild West dynamic. And now, Dan Furman, computers will soon read your mind. It's been almost a century since psychiatrist Hans Berger made the first electroencephalogram, providing a glimpse into the electric nature of the human brain. EEG readings have helped countless people struggling to recover from ailments ranging from epilepsy and sleep disorders to head injuries and brain tumors. Technology has come a long way since then, and artificial intelligence may soon give us a new brain technology revolution, with advances in the treatment of ALS, strokes, and other conditions. As a teenager in a mentorship program, I decided to study the brain after watching a neurosurgeon implant an electrode deep into the brain of a patient with Parkinson's, whose tremors were making it impossible for her to hold a pen or drink from a cup. The surgeon implanted the electrode, designed to deliver the right amount of electricity to the exact part of the brain responsible for the tremors, and awoke the patient, her skull still open, to adjust the implant settings. A few turns of a dial and the shaking stopped. Her tremors were cured. While the discovery of the EEG signals was revolutionary, They can be noisy and difficult to interpret, requiring expensive equipment and controlled environments. With recent advances in sensor materials, we are approaching the point at which brain signals can be read throughout the day with comfortable and discreet wearable devices, as a Fitbit or Apple Watch (coughs) measures our heart rates. Advances in computing and AI mean we could interpret these brain signals in real time. The possibilities include thought-to-speech and thought-to-movement assistive technology for ALS or paralysis patients and accelerated customized recovery protocols from those suffering from strokes, post-traumatic stress disorder, and brain trauma. Brain-computer interfaces could also help personalized teaching and training protocols to fit a learner's cognition and memory processes, eliminate the need for usernames and passwords with a seamless brain ID, and enable you or a mental health professional to monitor your emotional state throughout the day. I was part of the team that tried to develop a brain-computer interface for the astrophysicist Stephen Hawking, who suffered from ALS. Hawking's Intel-designed eye-tracking and cheek-click method relied on a level of muscular control that couldn't be taken for granted given his condition. He participated in the project, as he put it, to assist in research, and encourage, encourage investment in this area, and most importantly, to offer some future hope to people diagnosed with ALS and other neurodegenerative conditions. He died in 2018. Today, implant-based systems are increasingly powerful and non-invasive, and wearables are improving quickly, too. Many of us in the field believe we are nearing an inflection point when countless people will see the fruits of decades of research. The stakes are high. Although every new technology carries promises and risks, few are tied so intimately with who we are. That brings us to the end of today's articles. I'm Merrick Schneider, and I'll be back soon with more articles. Thank you for listening.